Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the great worship that we have enjoyed today. The music from the choir, from the adults, the music from the kids that lifts up that name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord and all of this to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we come in worship because we need to bow before you and we need to ascribe glory to your name. We need to come to worship so that our hearts can be renewed and our eyes of faith lifted up to see you as you are. Lord, we need to come to worship because as a family and community, we need to encourage each other. So Lord, in the midst of this happy season, and for some, a heartbreaking time, we come to the name of Jesus for healing and hope, forgiveness and strength. O Spirit of God, speak to every heart today, we pray in that matchless name, the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Several years ago, I was uh, shopping at Meyer and walking along to find the shortest checkout line. And as I was walking along, saw all the magazines that were screaming out for my attention. You know, the sensational, provocative titles, you know the kind. And I thought to myself, who in the world would buy something like that? And then I bought one. <laughs> That's because one of those, the National Geographic, said, the real Jesus, what archaeology tells us about him. Well, I stopped dead in my tracks. And I paid more for a magazine than I've ever paid in my life. And it was well worth it. A woman by the name of Kristen Romney, who, or Romy, who was an archaeologist turned into a journalist, wrote the article for the magazine, and I was prepared, usually when they have these Newsweek time things about Christ, I'm red-lettering the whole thing. But this was surprisingly good. She said, Christianity is a religion that started as a Jewish sect and is now the world's largest, most diverse religion with more than two billion believers. I hope to discover, she said, how the Christian texts and traditions stack up against the discoveries of the archaeologists. Some outspoken critics question whether Jesus ever existed, but not scholars, and particularly archaeologists. Eric Myers from Duke University, archaeologist and emeritus professor in Judaic studies, said, I don't know any mainstream scholar who doubts the historicity of Jesus. Which being translated means anyone with half a brain <laughs> believes that Jesus lived. But she went on to say there are two camps regarding this real historic Jesus. 
The one camp that believes that Jesus is the Jesus of the Gospels, as explained in the first four books of the New Testament. Or the second camp, believing in a real Jesus who inspired the myths. A religious reformer, a nomadic teacher, a social revolutionary. His real mission was regime change, not eternal salvation. An apocalyptic prophet, maybe, but not the king of kings. Either he is the God-man or just a man. And if he is just a man, this is the greatest literary hoax in the history of the world. And Paul would add to that, if these things aren't true, we are Christians, of all people, most to be pitied. But then she ended this article, and I don't know whether she's a believer or not, but she said this, I marvel at the many archeological discoveries made in Jerusalem and elsewhere over the years that lend credibility to the scriptures and the traditions surrounding the life and death of Jesus. Well, that's a pretty good conclusion from a secular magazine. And in fact, we don't need archeology span to prove that the Bible is true, but it's nice when it does. And true archeology span has always lent credibility to this thing we call the Bible, the Holy Word of God. So, when we think of the birth of Christ, we think of those um, nativity narratives that are found in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 1 and 2. But there is a great, great narrative about the birth of Christ in John chapter 1. And I want you to turn there. When we ask the question, who is he in yonder stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? The answer comes from the Apostle John with ringing clarity that he is God. Let me read from John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. First thing I simply want to say is that the Word was one with God from the very beginning. And that's what we read in verse one. In the beginning was the word. Notice how many times it's repeated. And the word was with him, with God. And the word was God. You say, that doesn't make any sense. That is illogical. It goes against reason. No, my friend, it is above reason, but it's not against it. And it's only because your limited understanding and my limited understanding that we cannot put all of that together. But in God's mind, there is no problem. This perhaps is this prologue of the Gospel of John, this introduction before he gives you the word and the rest of the Gospel, might have been an early hymn sung by Christians. We, uh, we read in the second century of Pliny, who was a Roman governor over Asia Minor, writing to the emperor Trajan. And he said this, Christians are in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it is light, 
and they sing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God. Well, that's pretty good from a pagan ruler. And he describes to us what Christians are doing. Fixed day, before the sun rises, probably because of persecution, and they sing alternating verses. You thought that MSU was the first to introduce Go Green, Go White. But no, it's been around for a long time. He is God. He is God. He is Lord. He is Lord. Glorious. Glorious worship. And they sing to Christ as to God. It may be that the prologue of John's gospel is one of those hymns. Or at least it has parts. Because it seems very liturgical, uh, very confessional in its statements and amazing power. Now, this is in the Greek language, so the word, word, is logos. We use it very often. Even in a prologos, prologue, or epilogos, it's always about the word. Or even in theology, it is about communication, the study of, the person of God. Logos is used all the time. And that would have been a very familiar word to the Hebrews because the Old Testament Hebrew was translated in, uh, in Alexandria, Egypt, into Greek. And in that language, the unspeakable name for God that the Jews would never utter is translated with the word logos. So very familiar to the Hebrew people. And by the way, one of the ways that the Jews would uh, speak about the books of the Old Testament is kind of in a bit of shorthand, so to speak. They would use the first words of a particular book to refer to the book. So the book of Genesis is in the beginning God. That's that refers to the whole book. And in the beginning, God of Genesis sounds a whole lot like in the beginning, the Word, who was with God and was God. And that is intentional, as John gives to us an understanding of the incarnation, of Christ being born as a babe in Bethlehem, of what we call Christmas. And it starts out with the Word was one with God. The Greeks had no problem with this, of course, Lagos. Heraclitus, a philosopher of about 500 BC, said in Greek philosophy, the Lagos was the shaping and the ordering and the directing principle of the universe. Well, that's perfect for Jesus. He is the shaping and directing and ordering principle of the universe, the Word of God, Lagos. So we read in John 1 that Jesus shares eternity with God. They are together, cohabiting. There is this intimate relationship. They're not only together in eternity, but they not only share eternity past, before time, but they share essence. The word shares the very nature of God, deity. So there is intimacy and there is deity, oneness. 
It's like it says in the book of Hebrews as we've been going through that study in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, that in the old days, God spoke through the prophets, but now in the last days, he speaks through his son, who is the exact representation of the father. He is the same essence as God. And yet this one God is described in the Bible as triune. And that's why he can be with the Father and be one in essence with the Father. This sounds a lot like John chapter 17. When you go through this wonderful gospel, Jesus is praying a prayer just before his crucifixion. And he says, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And that's where the Christmas story starts. It doesn't start in Bethlehem. It doesn't start with an angelic visit to Mary in Nazareth. It starts in the beginning, God. The eternal son is sent in time. He predates all existence. The word and God are interchangeable. Now, the Bible tells us very clearly that the Word is God, but God is more than the Word. Because you read a little further in the text, and it says that God is the Father. But the Word is not the Father. The Word is the one and only who comes from the Father. So you have this same shared essence, and yet you have these different roles, as it were. And the Bible tells us that that's what we need to grasp, that the Word was one with God. An amazing truth. In fact, when you look at this, going through John, you understand that the Word is God, verse 1 and 2, and the Word is Creator, That's what we read in verse 3. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Imagine that. So Jesus comes into the world and he's, he's put into a manger, probably stone carved out to be a feeding trough. Jesus made that. He didn't carve it into a trough, but he, he made the stone from which it came. He made the cave in which he was hiding. He made the donkey on which Mary rode. He made the gravel pit called Golgotha. Most likely a gravel pit, not a hill. And he made the cross upon which he was crucified. Because everything that was made was made by Jesus, including you. There's nothing made that has been made that hasn't been made by the creator of all, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the born, he is the baby born. So who is he in yonder stall? At whose feet the shepherds fall? Tis the Lord, the king of glory. Tis the Lord, oh wondrous story. At his feet we humbly bow and crown him. Crown him. Lord of all. One day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is 
Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's also life. He's God, he's creator, and he's life. That's verse four. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not, and here the translation is difficult. There are two possibilities, and they're both good. The darkness has not overcome the light, or the darkness has not understood the light. And both are true. Wickedness does not conquer the righteousness of God. And wickedness doesn't understand it. Think about Jesus coming into the world. He, he is he's life. Have you ever been around someone who's just vibrant? They seem to have energy. They seem to, as it were, be alive. And when most of us walk around sometimes half dead... These individuals give to us a challenge. They're a joy to be around. There's something magnetic about them because they are alive. That was Jesus. The common people heard him gladly. People flocked around him because his words were wise, but he was life. And in a dark world, the life gives light. I don't need to convince you that we are living in a dark, dark world. And it seems to be getting darker as time goes on, doesn't it? What used to be considered evil is now considered acceptable. And darkness seems to be overcoming, but it can't overcome the light. Even one little candle in a dark cave illumines the space. And Jesus comes into the world as the light. And the darkness cannot kill the light. Understand that. Shine with the light of Christ. The darkness can't overwhelm it. But understand this, the darkness cannot comprehend it. This world doesn't understand what we're doing this morning. In fact, you may be here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're saying, boy, I just don't get all this stuff. And I get that you don't get it. Because until the light of God's glory shines in your soul, until somehow the darkness of your heart and mind can be illumined by truth, you won't get it. You won't see it. Because we live in ignorance and darkness and Jesus came to be the light of life. Not only a light to his people, but a light to the Gentiles as well. So, the word is one with God. Secondly, the word came from God. We'll jump down to verse 14, that familiar passage, because it tells us that the word... The Lagos, God creator, life, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. It's the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. C.S. Lewis called this the grand miracle that God would become a man. 
it's interesting, as you note, of course, Jesus came, that's where he was. He was with the Father. So if he's coming into this world, he has to come from the Father. But notice verse 14 says, the word became flesh. John did not use the word for man, and he did not use the word for body. He used the Greek word for flesh, because flesh speaks of frail humanity and acknowledges that Jesus enters into the struggle of our humanity. It was said in Romans chapter 8, the law was powerless, what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, that is, sinful humanity could not keep God's law, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now he is perfectly man, but without the sin part. He's sent in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemns sin in the flesh. That's what Jesus does. And he becomes a frail baby. Boy, a lot of people didn't see that coming. You say, but yeah, they should have known Isaiah chapter 6. It says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son. Yeah, they should have, but they didn't. It's like you and I read the scriptures and don't quite get it sometimes until after the fact. And then we put the things, the verses together and we say, oh, now I get it. I think that's what's going to happen with the book of the Revelation. You know, people try to put it together all the time. It's really a hard book to put together. But after Jesus comes, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it is going to make sense. Oh, now I see how that goes together. And that's what happened. They weren't expecting a baby. He came from the Father, but he's not, of the, he's not the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. John says in 1 John, we saw the Word of life and we touched him and we heard him. We saw him. And it was indeed exciting, exhilarating, because he had the glory as of the one and only of the Father. Now, some of you have translations that read the only begotten Son of God. And the New International Translation has the one and only Son. You say, which is right? Let me again say yes. Because they're both true. Begotten focuses on the sense of origin. He comes from God and shares the essence of God and is born, but one and only shows the unique position he holds in the Father's eyes. He is the Father's one and only. And that gives him special glory, the glory he shares with the Father before the world was. And notice it says that he came from the Father and Jesus was full of grace and truth. As I'm thinking over that phrase, I'm connected to the way we use it in English so often and talk about someone in derogatory terms. Oh, they're full of it. We'll say, oh, that person is full of themselves. Right? You ever used that before? People have used it of you, I'm sure. <laughs> and of me. Or they'll use something a little more colorful to fill in the blank full of, you know. But what is God full of? Grace and truth. 
How do I know that? Because Jesus told me. Jesus is full of the Spirit. And he's full of grace and holiness. All the virtues of God. But here it says he comes to this world and he's full of grace and truth. What does this broken world need? The truth and grace because we've sinned. The truth condemns us until the part of redemption redeems us. The truth is Jesus come to save. Someone put it this way. I think it was Anselm, 11th century. Since no one can save, since no one save God, excuse me, since no one except God, save God, can make satisfaction for our sins. And since no one save man ought to make an atonement for our sins, it is necessary for God to become a man. There's sound logic. Has to be done by a man, but no man is worthy. So God becomes a man and dies in our place. The Scottish theologian Bruce Milne said this, the, greatest, uh, the greatness of this truth assaults our minds that Jesus would become like us in our flesh. It assaults our minds. It staggers the imagination. And by the, that very fact, drives us to our knees. There is no parallel in any of the world's religions to the sympathetic presence of Jesus in our flesh, struggling on our behalf and dying for our sin. It is indeed beyond comprehension. So that's the grand miracle. God becomes man. But why? John tells us. The word was one with the Father. The word came from the Father. And now notice this. The word reveals the Father. For verse 18 tells us, no one has ever seen God. But God the one and only. Isn't that a great phrase? But God the one and only. Who's the one and only? Jesus. The word made flesh. And now he's clearly called God. I am no scholar when it comes to the original languages, but I know how to read those who are. And the best of scholars say this translation is right on. I love it. No one has ever seen God. But the one who was with God, who was God, came from God, the one and only Son, who was at the Father's side. It's an endearing term, sometimes translated bosom. It's the term that, that we think of, of a mother holding her child and, and giving the child nourishment. It's the very word that is used in the Last Supper by this apostle, John, as he is the one whom Jesus loves, and he loves the Lord, and he's leaning on his breast by the way we have a really wrong idea of the of the last supper when we look at you know the great painting uh where everyone's at a table and they're all white europeans and you go that's the last supper 
No, they weren't white Europeans, and they weren't sitting at a table. They were leaning on each other, on a table that was barely raised. And that's why it was so important to wash your feet before you came into a meal. And that night, no one wanted to wash any feet. I'm not doing that. I've been senior pastor of this church for a long time. If we're going to lay around with dirty feet and eat a meal, I'm not the one who's... Tim's going to do it. (laughs) I mean, that's the way they were thinking, right? No one would do it. Apparently, there was no one there as a host in the room. And so Jesus gets up. What a rebuke. Peter knows he's being rebuked, and he doesn't know what to say. He says, Lord... Don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter said, give me a total bath. That's the way we are. We go to extremes so quickly. But one of the reasons you need clean feet is because you're leaning on the bosom of the person next to you. That's why a meal was more than just eating. It was close social interaction. Oh, But God sends his son from his bosom. The NIV translates it, who is at the father's side. Again, one theologian expresses this so well. It's as though God has reached into his very bosom and plucked out his own heart and sent it to us in the person of his son. which means that God is with us. You say, well, what does God look like? Very simple answer. Jesus. Because Jesus came to make him known. Remember, darkness was in the world and the darkness doesn't understand the light and people don't understand who God is and they come up with all of these wild and stupid ideas and even those who read the scripture often take it out of context and build this idea of who God is when Jesus says, no one has seen him. I'm coming to show, he's, show you what he's like. God is just like Jesus. Which means he's full of grace and truth. The one who is at the Father's side with the word who is at home in the Father's presence face to face now comes on a mission to reveal the Father and he comes as the light. But why does he come? Well, John tells us that in this narrative of the nativity. When he said the world didn't understand, look at verse 6. So there was a man sent from God whose name was John, not the author of the gospel, but John the baptizer. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. What was that? John came to witness to the light so that through the light everyone would believe. That's the mission of Christmas. John the Baptist is merely introducing the light 
who comes so that all might believe. If you go to the end of John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 30, uh, not everything that Jesus did are put into this book, but these things are written so that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing you might have life. There is name. It's faith. That's the goal. That you might know him, see him in Jesus, and believe him and embrace him as your Lord and Savior. He came to reveal God to us so that all would believe. And the response to that should be unspeakable joy, right? I don't want to overlook the heartache that many are passing through this Christmas season and we should not be hard and cold to ignore it ourselves. These days seem to be unusually difficult for many of our South family, losing our own and losing close relatives. And when the heart should be happy with the glories of the season, their heart is breaking by the reality of loss. But to you who are in that time of loss and heartache, let me tell you, Jesus has come to give you life. And that life is eternal life. And everyone who believes in him will live forever. And at this time of year, if we don't grab hold of the hope of the gospel and the person of Christ, we miss what Christmas is all about. Maybe that's why we're so gloomy, and maybe that's why the darkness seems to be taking over us, and we, be, we seem to be giving into the spirit of the season and the spirit of the world, and no, no, no. Our Savior is Lord. He came to give us life and he's on the throne and all things will turn out for his glory. And so we should be filled with joy. There was a young man who criticized the music in his church. That's not too unusual. (laughs) His dad was a deacon and a Sunday school teacher and he criticized the music to his dad. His dad said to him, those hymns, those old hymns were good enough for my grandfather. They're good enough for me, and they'll be good enough for you, (laughs) which is a normal response. Regardless, the young man said, it'll never do for me. Now the father's a bit angry, and he says to his son, if you don't like the hymns we sing, write your own. And he said, okay, I will. So he came back to his father and he said, Dad, I've written a brief verse on Revelation 5, verse 6. Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst his father's throne. Prepare new honors for his name and songs as yet unknown. Dad says, that's that's pretty good. It's hard for a dad to admit he was wrong. So he said, that's not bad. Can I use that in my Sunday school class this week? Son said, sure. Oh, and could you write one for next week? Son said, sure. He wrote a new verse for 222 Sundays in a row. Dad used them every Sunday. 
he, he basically took the Psalms and put them into these verses. And when he came to Psalm 98, he penned these words, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And let heaven and nature sing. That's how you respond to God becoming man. You sing with unspeakable joy. And you make room in your heart for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, the Christmas story, as Isaac Watts has told us, is about you coming down, the king of glory. And joy should be the result. The Christmas story is about God. And God has come. We need more than just the Christmas story. We need the crucifixion story. And we need the Easter story of resurrection. But Lord, we delight in this season to recall your great gift of mercy in sending yourself, your one and only, who is full of you, of grace and truth, who is light and life to shine in this dark world so that we might believe and share in that life forever. Oh Lord, speak to hearts today that need to embrace you as Savior. And may all of us make room in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.